If you want to go ahead and, and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, and then also another place you want to get to is Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at lesson number 75 in your books, Battling Blindness. All right, let's go ahead. We are finished now, and let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father God, again, we come before your presence with thankful, grateful hearts, praising you for who you are, that you are a personal, living, loving God who sent his only begotten Son to this world so that we might have our eyes opened, that we might see the light of truth revealed in him, that we might get to know you through your Son. Father, I would pray now that you would help again to take all the clutter of our busy lives from our minds to help us to focus clearly, single-heartedly, single-mindedly on what your Holy Spirit has to teach us through your word this morning. Father, I pray for your grace. I need your um, your help because apart from you I know I can do absolutely nothing I need you to give me a clear mind and a quick speaking tongue to cover the the great lessons that we have to cover actually three lessons this could be so I really need you father this morning and I pray that whatever we accomplish here would be for your glory that Jesus Christ might be lifted up and we might all be drawn closer to him for we do pray in his name amen did you know that there are, I have a daughter who works for an eye doctor in West End. She herself is a para-optometric, so whatever that is. Uh, but I asked her if she would do some research on blindness for me, and she promptly gave the job to her husband. So he got on the Internet and found out for me that there are, this is amazing to me, 45 million totally blind people in the world today 45 million that is one if you put them all in one city that would be a very very large city of blind people then add to that another 180 million people who are legally blind in other words without eye assistance they couldn't see my daughter being one of them it's ironic that she wound up working for an eye doctor because without her glasses, she can't even see my face. So you add those two figures together, and there are 225 million people in this world who are legally blind or worse, totally blind. But do you know what the percentage, well, I don't know what the percentage is worldwide because there's some 7 billion people in the world. I guess that would be somewhere around 7 or 8% of the world is blind. But do you know what the percentage of spiritually blind people is in this world? People born spiritually blind? <laughs> yeah, I should have said born spiritually blind. 100% of all people are born spiritually blind. Our lesson today is called Battling Blindness. Jesus Christ came to earth to battle spiritual blindness. Now, along the way, he did heal some physically blind people as well. And one of those we will look at in our lesson this morning, which consists of three parts. Our outline consists of three parts. We'll be looking at complete sightlessness, those who were completely blind, and that was the spiritual leaders, primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees we will be talking about this morning. Then we're going to be looking at cloudy sight, those who still had fuzzy vision. But the disciples had received their sight. 
they had accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah. So their eyes were open to the light of his truth. He said, follow me. They followed him. But their vision was still cloudy. They weren't seeing like they would see later on, on the day of Pentecost, when they received God the Holy Spirit. So they, we'll look at them and their cloudy sight in our sec- second division for outline. And then we'll look at cleared sight as we actually watch the Lord heal a completely blind man. And that will be over in Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. This will be our 27th miracle in our Life of Christ study, I believe it is. All right, so let's begin by looking, first of all, at the Lord's battle with uh, total blindness, the spiritual leaders. And for this, I want to read Matthew 15. We'll start at verse 39 and go through chapter 16, verse 4. Look with me. It says, this is right after the Lord fed the 4,000 over in the area of Decapolis. It says in verse 39 of Matthew 15, And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. And then look at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came. This is as soon as he got to Magdala. There they, are, there they were, the religious rulers of Israel. Now remember, how long has he been gone? How long was he in the Decapolis? We said some six months, commentators estimate. So he's been in Gentile territory some six months. He comes back into the area of Galilee, and who's waiting for him? There they are, (laughs) the religious rulers. And they weren't there with banners saying, Welcome back, Jesus, either. It says, They came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Oh, me. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather. For the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but, he'd already told him this before, remember, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Now, if you will look over at quickly Mark 8, let's also read a few verses in Mark 8, verses 10 to 12. It says, And straightway he, Jesus, entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them, it says, and departed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. All right, what we find here is that when the Lord arrived back into the area of Galilee after his departure into Gentile territory for some six months, he goes to the west side of the sea, gets in a boat, goes to the west side, if you look at your Bibles, to the little town of Magdala. Magdala is famous because of what woman? Mary of Magdala, known as Mary Magdalene. Now, some critics, Bible critics, haven't properly done their homework, and so they say that there is an error in the scripture because Mark says that Jesus went over to 
Dalmanutha, whereas Matthew says he went to Magdala, so the Bible's in error. But the, the situation is that Dalmanutha is Aramaic for the harbor of Magdala. And it's interesting. Remember how we talked about the fact that Mark has more Aramaic than anybody else, so he uses the Aramaic term for Magdala, which was the harbor Dalmanutha. So the Bible critics, once again, should just do their homework. All right, so as soon as Jesus gets there with his men, some Pharisees and Sadducees are hanging around. They're very relentless. I don't know if they've been waiting there the whole time for him to, to finally get back to Galilee so they could attack him, but there they are waiting, and they're not there honestly attempting to find out the truth about him. They are there to do what? They're there to criticize. They're actually there to tempt him. They're there with the hope of finding some fault in him or some falsehood about him. I'm sure they had heard much about the Bread of Life sermon where he claimed to be the Bread of Life that came down from heaven. He claimed to be the one who would raise people on Resurrection Day. So they're waiting. They've been restlessly waiting so they could attack him. Now, just very quickly, back in Lesson 10, I think it was, several years ago, we talked about the different sects of Israel, S-E-C-T-S, such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, uh, the um, Zealots, the Herodians, the Essenes. But I want to just do a quick review since here the Pharisees and Sadducees are mentioned. The Pharisees are mentioned first because they were the main group involved in seeking always to discredit Jesus. And uh, they were, remember the Lord has already called them blind leaders of the blind. There were more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. And they carried more weight with the people. Even though the Sadducees were more powerful, the Pharisees were more popular. Now they weren't overly popular, but they were more popular with the people than the Sadducees. The Pharisees were what we could call the traditionalists of that day. They were the conservatives. They were the fundamentalists. They did believe in, the, in um, all the th- same things that we would believe in, except the deity of Christ, which I erroneously said yesterday. They did not believe in the deity of Christ. But they did believe in the living God. They believed that the whole Old Testament was God-inspired, whereas the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of Moses were inspired by God. And the rest of the Old Testament, they said, was not God-inspired. And they said that it, um, they spiritualized it so much that they lost the truth of it. That was the Sadducees. But the Pharisees believed in, in uh, the afterlife. They did believe in a literal heaven and a, and a literal hell. They believed in the immortality of the soul. They believed in the miraculous. They believed in, um, what have I forgotten, angels and they believed in spirit beings like demons. They also were, praise the Lord, the only ones who kept alive the promise, the hope of the coming Messiah. The Sadducees really gave up on that. They didn't really believe that a Messiah was coming, but the Pharisees did. So they were the fundamentalists. And um, the only problem was that they, over the years, had come to put more weight on their traditions than they did on the scripture, didn't they? And because they put more emphasis on their traditions in some cases it overrided the scripture so that was the problem with pharisees among some other things they got pretty self-righteous they were full of pride they 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 really thought they were the elite crowd and they were the word pharisee does anybody know what it means it means separated they were the, the the separated ones they they really kept themselves separated from gentiles 
and even from the common people of, of Israel, and especially the sinful people of Israel, such as publicans and prostitutes. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And women, they would never talk to a woman in public, and they saw themselves as, as so much greater than women. There was one group called the bruised and battered or bruised and beaten Pharisees because whenever a woman, if they were in public and they saw a woman coming, they'd close their eyes and they were constantly walking into things because they wouldn't even look at a woman. They hated the Romans and they would not compromise with the Romans, except in one case when they compromised with the Herodians so as to discredit Jesus. All right, then the Sadducees. They, on the other hand, didn't mind so much Roman interference and they didn't hesitate to make compromises with Rome if it was to their own advantage financially or politically. Remember Annas's bazaar? Annas and Caiaphas were co-reigning high priests of Israel, which was a no-no because there was only supposed to be one high priest. So they were, you know, they were unscriptural right there, even having two. One was a father and Annas was the father and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. But they ran the whole money profiteering business in the temple, the money changers and the animal sellers that were ripping the people off. And that's why Jesus had to go in there twice and cleanse the temple. But this was all the Sadducees doing. They, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They thought this is the only life there is. There is no resurrection of the dead. There is a God, but there's no resurrection. The only way you get rewarded in this life is by through, through wealth, monetary, or power. So they, you know, get all the gusto you can while you can. So they saw nothing wrong in, in benefiting financially. They told people that that was their reward from God for being good people, being pious or whatever. I don't even really understand why they are considered a religious sect because they didn't believe in the miraculous. They were like liberals today. The, the Pharisees were the legalists of their day, whereas the Sadducees were the liberals of our day. They took out all the supernatural from the Bible. Of course, I already told you they only believed the first five books of the Bible were God-inspired. The rest, they spiritualized it away. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. So I don't really understand why they were religious. The fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection and the immortality of the soul is why they were sad, you see. Of course, you knew I couldn't go without saying that. All right, so they were only interested in this present life, and uh, that's why they went ahead and, you know, highly profited from every, anything and everything that they could. Now, these two religious sects, were, which were used usually at each other's throats, they did not get along at all. Now, who was more powerful in the Sanhedrin? Would be like the Congress of our country. Who was more powerful? The Sadducees, even though they were fewer in number, they were more powerful because of the fact that Annas and Caiaphas were Sadducees and also because they had much more money. Pharisees were rich, but not as rich as Sadducees. So usually there were, they were at each other's throats, but here now we find that they had a they had united in a common goal, which was to discredit Jesus Christ. A mutual love for their own power and their hatred of Jesus is what brought these two groups together, these legalists and these liberals. And this is always the way it is with those who are willfully and sinfully blind. Because they trust only in themselves and in their own good works, their common enemy is who? God. God or Jesus Christ. 
you know, and anyone who stands for God and Jesus Christ is their common enemy. This is what brings those who normally disagree to be willing to join forces and work together. That is their mutual hatred of the truth of the word of God, of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what it will be all about when the Antichrist rules. You know, the whole world will be joined together against Christians, true Christians, and against who else? God's chosen people, the Jews. So united in their desire to alienate Jesus from the affections of the people among whom most of his miracles were performed, right? Among the common people. I don't know that we read of any Pharisees being healed or Sadducees, do we? Because they, they wouldn't believe. That's why he does no good, no miracle in Magdala. It's interesting to me, I get off in sidetracks, and this is why I never finish my lessons, but it's interesting that here he was over in Decapolis, you know, for, I should probably do it this way for you guys, but for six months he's over there. You know, first he was in Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile, Phoenicia. Then he goes to Decapolis for six months. Then he gets his guys in a boat and goes over to Magdala on the western, southwestern sort of side of the Sea of Galilee. All that happens there is this confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then he gets right back in the boat and goes back up to the area of Bethsaida. So what was that all about? I don't know, just to have this one confrontation. and Or maybe Mary was hanging around Magdala that day and saw the Lord. You know, we haven't read about her yet. Maybe, maybe there was something to do with her. But I don't know, it's interesting that he went all the way over there and just right back. No miracles were performed there. Why? Because they were willfully unbelieving. He doesn't perform miracles like in Nazareth, remember? He could perform no miracles there because of their unbelief. So anyhow, these two, these two groups get together. They join forces to discredit Jesus. <clears throat> and what, do they, how, what is their temptation? They ask him to show them a sign from where? From heaven. Now this is the fourth time they ask him for a sign. And they're going to do it one more time yet. We'll be over in Luke eleven fourteen. How ridiculous. How many signs did they need before they would believe? The last time he showed them a sign, he um, healed a man who was deaf, mute, blind, and demonically possessed. And maybe one other thing. I don't know. The guy had lots of problems. And he healed him completely. And what did they conclude? That he did his power in the, you know, his uh, works in the power of Beelzebub. They attributed his sign miracles to Satan. These completely blind Jews could not see the signs he did give them because of why? Because they did not want to see that Jesus himself was their sign. He was their sign from heaven. Remember, he said he came down from heaven. He's the living bread from heaven. He fulfilled all kinds of, of uh, prophecies. He was born of a virgin. Wasn't he? Just like Isaiah 7:14 had predicted, if they had bothered to investigate. He was born where? Bethlehem, Ephrata. Let's make it specific because there was more than one Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And there was a sign from heaven that could have led them right there. It led some wise men from a long much farther away. That wasn't good English, but you know what I mean. That was a sign from heaven, the star of Bethlehem, and they only lived a couple miles away, but they didn't bother to investigate that sign from heaven. Everything he did, everything he said, his genealogical record, 
all was fulfillment of prophecies. And remember Simeon? When Jesus was eight days old, his parents took him into the temple so that he could be circumcised and Mary could be um, cleansed, purified. And Simeon was an old man, godly man, who had been promised by God the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw his Redeemer, his Savior, the promised seed of the woman. As soon as Mary and Joseph brought in little baby Jesus, Simeon was told by God the Holy Spirit, this is he. And he took the little baby in his arms, and what did he say? This amazing prophecy. He said, "This, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Many Jews have fallen because of Jesus, haven't they? Many, ha- many have risen, but many have fallen too. And then he said this, And this child is for a sign to be opposed. That's in Luke 2.34 if you want to bother to look it up. So you see, even by opposing him, isn't that what they were doing, the religious rulers? They opposed him every step of the way. So even by opposing him, they were receiving a sign because they themselves were the sign. They were the ones opposing him. But because they chose to remain blind and not accept God's greatest sign, which was his son sent from heaven, they required another sign from heaven. Now there was a popular superstition in the land of Israel back in that day that demons could easily perform earthly miracles. That's why they said everything he did, you know, was in the power of Satan. They believed like um, you know, the uh, oh, Pharaoh's magicians how they could throw their sticks down and have serpents. They said Satan can perform earthly miracles, but only God himself could perform miracles in the sky. So they were really asking Jesus to perform some kind of a sign miracle in the sky. You know, something like Joshua did when he made the sun stand still. Of course, we know Joshua didn't do that, did he? Who did it? God. God did it. Or something like Elijah when he had um, lightning, come to, fire come down from heaven. Or something like Isaiah when he made the sun turn back. They wanted something like that. But maybe, you know, those things, meh. We've already seen those things. So we want something new and different, Jesus. How about, um, I don't know, you guys can make up something. What about if he wrote his name with the clouds or said, um, I am the Messiah with the stars? Or how about if he took a rainbow and wrapped it around the sun or, or something spectacular that they had never seen? Something up there that would just absolutely convince everyone who he really was. But... The truth of the matter is, they really didn't believe he could do such a thing. They were tempting him. You know, you say you're the bread of life come down from heaven. You say that you are equal with God. Well, then let's see you perform a miracle like this. But they didn't really believe he could. But you know who was using them? Satan. The word for tempt here, that they were tempting him. What is the same word used when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus in the wilderness? Remember, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and not eating, uh, they tempted, uh, Satan tempted Jesus then to do things that were not in God's will. And one in particular which parallels this temptation of having a sign in the heaven would be the one that tempted Jesus with regard to the pride of life. And that was when Satan said, why don't you jump from the pinnacle of the temple, you know, in Jerusalem, 
the pinnacle of the temple down to the Kidron Valley was 450 feet. So why don't you go ahead, jump off, and God will send his angels. They'll swoop by and, and rescue you. And then everybody in Israel will see this spectacular event, and they will know that you are indeed the Messiah. What was that a temptation about? Avoiding the cross. You can have it all now, Jesus. You can have the crown without the cross. Remember when it told us that, of course, Jesus defeated Satan <laughs> with the word of God in the wilderness, and it said Satan departed for a season. But he came back over and over again throughout the Lord's life. One time was when, <clears throat> after he fed the 5,000 crowd, what did the people want to do? Wanted to force a crown on his head. That was a bypass of the cross situation, was it not? Well, here's another temptation. Satan is using <coughs> these religious rulers to try to get Jesus to do something that was not God's will, something that was actually evil because it was not in God's plan and it was something that would bypass the cross, get the crown without the cross. So, <clears throat> but I believe they really didn't think he could do it that he could have a sign in the sky. So anyway, regardless, he refused to give them another sign. More than enough signs had already been given. They didn't believe in him, not because they had had a lack of adequate signs, but rather because they were too blind to spirit to properly interpret the ones he had given them. You know, they were very poor stewards of their past blessings. It's like when you tell your children <coughs> to eat what's on their plate before they ask for seconds, right? Or before you get dessert, clean your plate first. Well, they needed to, to clean their plate before they dared to go and ask for more signs, more blessings. They hadn't properly uh, used what they had been given. So since they were <coughs> talking about the sky... He answered them with a response that had to do with signs in the sky. He said, in effect, you men are clever enough to read the natural signs in the sky. You know, for example, when the sky is red at evening, they knew that, thank you, Terry, that it was usually followed by fair weather the next day. And when the sky is red in the morning, you know that a storm is coming. This is, there's a mariner's little cliche that goes, you all know it probably, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, morning sailors warning. <clears throat> he says to them, since you're so good at discerning the face of the sky, why is it that you hypocrites cannot discern the signs of the times? If you'll look with me real quickly, go over to Luke chapter 12 for a minute. Here he's talking about the color of the sky, but in Luke 12, verses 54 to 56, this is a different time. It's not a parallel account, but at another time in his life, he's talking to the people. In verse 54, he says, um, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, There cometh a shower. And we're going to have a rain shower. And so it is. These, these were how they used to tell the, the, you know, give the weather forecast back in those days, and it was pretty accurate. 
So, and then verse 55, he says, And when ye see the, tr- the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? The time in which he lived. Or you can go back to uh, Matthew. They could discern the weather by the color of the sky, the clouds in the sky, and the currents of the wind. But they couldn't discern the times in which they were living. And were they living in amazing times? I mean, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, was living amongst them. If they had spiritual discernment, they would have known the times they were living in. They could have calculated just from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that this was a very significant time. They should have been anticipating the Messiah because you can count right down to the day from that prophecy when he would officially announce himself as the Messiah. And if you've never studied Daniel's uh, great 70 weeks prophecy, we have the tapes in the back, but to me it's the most amazing prophecy in all the word of God. They didn't know the times they were living in, and they had so many signs from genealogy to all the fulfilled prophecies we've talked about, etc., etc. John the Baptist had been the forerunner. He had told them who Jesus was. God had spoken from heaven. They had no excuses. He's saying here, and do we live in significant times, by the way? Yes, we do. I truly believe that we live in very, very significant times because I believe we live in the time right before the Lord's return. I really do. And I think there are many signs that indicate that. Now, I know there are no signs that precede the rapture. It's imminent. It can happen at any moment. It can happen before we leave here. Um, but I do believe it's going to happen very soon. I really do. So hang on there. Don't, don't die yet. We're all going <laughs> to... But... He, no, I guess we can't control that. But if you do have to die, you know, we'll see you shortly, the rest of us. <laughs> and we can continue this study, in <laughs> and Jesus can be the teacher. Oh, anyway, he was saying to them that, uh, that he was saying to his tempters that their knowledge of the weather was greatly superior greatly superior to their knowledge of spiritual matters. Their knowledge and their perception of weather conditions actually made a mockery out of their lack of perception of spiritual truths. You know, they were, they were indeed the experts at the irrelevant. He said, you might know what God is doing in the sky as far as the weather is concerned, but you are as blind as you can be when it comes to knowing what he is doing in your very midst while you are here on earth. You know, don't don't look up at the sky. And, you know, I thought about how ironic it is that they thought Satan, God did the signs in the sky, but isn't Satan the prince of the power of the air? There's a lot of things that are going on in the, in the heavenlies that are Satan's doing. You know, well, that's another story. But he says, you don't even recognize the significance of the time in which you are living. Think, think how this is true in most of our world today, isn't it? You know, I watch the news. I've told you this before. I watch the news, and I, I, I guess it's my best way to frustrate myself because I think, you guys are so smart. I mean, we have men of great worldly intellect. They, they have vocabularies that way exceed, and brains that way exceed me. They can, uh, they can talk um, 
well, let's go to the weather channel, for example. If you want the weather in China, you can get it. You know, we've got satellites that can give us cloud coverage everywhere in the world or moisture density, wherever you want to find out about it. We have computer-generated graphics of, um, of rain and, and snow and ice and uh, the patterns. We can have live pictures of hurricanes and, and floods and tornadoes and blizzards and volcanoes or whatever, tsunamis, whatever you want. We have um, men who have looked far into space with these gigantic telescopes, and they can even tell us, in case you wanted to know, what the weather's doing on Mars. Do you care? I personally don't care what's going on up there. We have experts who can predict the stock markets and the direction of interest rate, uh, rates and the future values of real estate. We have those who can tell us about the future trends of, of, of um, I'm so sick of hearing about politics. <laughs> and the wars, and um, techno technological experts that we can't even keep up with, right? As soon as we get our CDs all made, they're going to have us do something else. But, but all, so many of these people, by far the vast majority of these experts, are totally blind to read the signs of the times that you and I live in. They don't even consider them in all of their forecasts. They don't see at all how everything happening in the world today is lining up in perfect accord with the sign of Jesus' coming again at the end of the age. I'm talking about his return, not at the rapture, but his return when he comes to end the um, battle that's going on at Armageddon and, and throw the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. You can read it. You want a sign from heaven, he says? You're going to get one. You read Matthew 24:27. They're going to get their sign in the sky when Jesus comes again. He knew, the Lord knew, that even if they were, he was to give them some spectacular sign in the sky, as he is going to give them not only at the time of his return, but in the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation, they're going to get more signs than they ever wanted in the sky. I am glad that I'm not going to see these things in the sky from this side. I'm going to see it from heaven's balcony, but the sun is going to turn as black as sackcloth of hair. Whatever that means, I don't want to see it from down here. <laughs> and the moon is going to become as red as what? Blood. The other night when I was coming home, it was my little grandson's second birthday on Sunday, so we went to Virginia Beach to celebrate his birthday. And that was precious. He doesn't understand what a birthday is, but he did get, he understood presents and he understood birthday cake. So now when you say birthday, he says cake. <laughs> he had, you know, he had chocolate all over, but... Uh, when I was come, Frank and I were driving, actually I was driving, and because my husband drives so much, whenever we go together, I do the drive, and we were coming home. I don't know how many of you noticed the sunset Sunday night. It was absolutely awesome. It was one of the most beautiful ones that I have seen in a long time. Literally, Mary, stand up, Mary Wall, literally the sun was the color of her sweater. It was lavender. I said to my husband, I said, that's a lavender sunset. He said it is. It's lavender. And then as the sun proceeded to go down, it turned pink. And then just as the sun was going down, it was orange. It, it was gorgeous. But that ain't going to be nothing compared to what happens during the Great Tribulation. The moon is going to become red as blood. And one-third of the sun, moon, and stars are going to be darkened at the the, when the fourth trumpet blows. And this one, 
this is really interesting. You remember not Venetian blinds, but the other kind of blinds that we had growing up, the, the solid blinds that you'd pull down. They were on a roll and shades, shades. And if you pulled it down too far or something, you know, sometimes they'd get stuck, but other times they'd go <laughs> Well, it tells us that the sky is going to roll up like that as a scroll. Now, I have no idea what that's going to look like, but it's going to be awesome. And you know what? Men are still not going to get the picture and fall on their faces and worship God. They, it tells us that they're actually going to be raising their fists in God's face. They know where these are coming from. They know it's God and his wrath. But they're going to raise their fists in his face and curse him. Can you imagine? That is complete sightlessness. That is willful unbelief. Jesus knew that no heavenly sign that he could give these religious rulers would cause them to submit to his lordship. He had already given them the star of Bethlehem, and they didn't even bother to go over to Bethlehem to investigate. They had already determined to reject him. You know, they didn't care about the facts. They had their minds made up. They didn't lack evidence. They lacked honesty and genuine humility of spirit. So he would not give in to their hypocritical testing, which he told them was the demand of a wicked and what? Adulterous generation. In other words, he's accusing them of wicked. You know, they're, they're being led by Satan. This is a satanic generation and an adulterous generation. In other words, they were committing spiritual adultery against God. Rather than worshiping the true God, who if they were worshiping him, they would have known who Jesus was. They would have recognized God in Jesus. But rather than worshiping Jehovah, they were worshiping a God of their own invention, weren't they? They were, they were worshiping a God of their own man-made traditions, a God who required just external cleanliness, a God of signs and wonders. Are there people today who have a God made up of their own mind who say, you know, um, a God of signs and wonders. Give us signs, give us wonders, give us miraculous healings of every kind and all this supernatural stuff, and that's our God. They, um, they weren't worshiping the true God. The only sign that he would give these blind leaders of the blind was the same one he told them that he would give them, the only other one, and that was the sign of what? Jonah the prophet. You see, if Jesus had, at this point, if he had gone ahead and had, um, I don't know, maybe had the sun and the moon come together and bump and then go part and bump and go part like that, something in the sky. Do you know what he would have done? He would have broken his own word because already he has told them no other sign would be given to them but the sign of Jonas. So he would have been going back on his own word if he had done something here. So he said that he would give them this, the only additional sign they would ever receive is the sign of Jonas. And what was the sign of Jonas? A picture. Three days. Yeah, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so would the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, it's a sign of his death, burial, and resurrection. And you know what? When they got that sign, when they got word that he did indeed raise on the third day, just like he said he would be, the, you know, just like Jonas... And just like the, you know, remember when he said, destroy this temple, speaking of his own body, and in three days I'll raise it again? They remembered those things. They knew his body was gone, but you know what they did instead? 
Did they believe this great sign? Did they say, you have proven, you did what you said, you've proven who you are. Did they fall on their faces and worship, repent and worship Jesus and go out throughout a whole world like the apostles did? No, you know what they did instead? They bribed the Roman soldiers with a great deal of money, it tells us, to lie and say that his disciples came and stole his body. You see, they knew the truth. They knew he did indeed raise from the dead. And yet they were so willfully obstinate and blinded in their unbelief that they, that they used money. You know, I thought about, I told the women yesterday, money is what has blinded Israel because the religious rulers not only bought out Judas to betray Jesus, but they bought out the Roman soldiers to lie about what happened. It, mm, sad. So no wonder Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. It tells us over in Mark eight twelve. Remember he had sighed last week when he healed the uh, deaf man? That was a sigh over the physical result that sin has brought into this world. Today's sigh, when he sighs deeply in his spirit, I believe is a sigh over the spiritual result of sin that so many are so willfully blind. He knew the evil in the sign request, the attempt to do evil against him. He knew this, and, and to get him to do evil. He knew all that, and he knew the hardness of their hearts, which was a result of their unbelief, and it caused him to sigh deeply in his spirit. These religious rulers talk about signs in the sky. They were like clouds without rain. They were just empty shells, weren't they? Sad, sad group. All right, let's move on to cloudy sight. Those who had cloudy sight were the Lord's own men. So let's look at verses uh, 5 to 12 in Matthew 16. I don't think I'll read the parallel account in, in Mark, but you can look at that while I'm talking. Matthew 16, verse 5. It says, well, go back up to verse 4. He left, and he left and departed. He couldn't do any works there, could he? He just left them and departed. That's sad. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And over in Mark eight fourteen, it tells us that they only had one loaf with them in the boat, one loaf of bread. They had forgotten to. I guess they were so short, they, they were in Magdala so short time that they didn't have enough, enough time to go purchase bread. So they only had one loaf, and the disciples realized this. Verse 6 says, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And in Mark, it tells us that he also said, Beware of the leaven of Herod. And they, that speaks of his disciples, reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand? And over in Mark, he at this point quotes from Jeremiah 5.21, where he says, Having ears, ye hear not. Or I, I think it starts with eyes. Having eyes, ye see not. And having ears, ye hear not. That's from Jeremiah 5.21. And he's using this verse in reference to his own men. But we don't read that in Matthew. All right, he says, Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? 
neither the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up distinctly two different feeding miracles right not just one verse 11 how is it that ye do not understand that i spake it not to you concerning bread that ye should be <clears throat> should beware of the leaven of the pharisees and of the sadducees then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. They did have their eyes open there at the end, but they were a little confused at first. They had some cloudy sight. Well, unlike the religious rulers, the Lord's apostles were no longer completely sightless. They had received their, their vision. They, they were out of the dark totally, I mean, uh, spiritually, because, you know, they had believed in, at this point, they now believe that he is even the son of God, don't they, after that storm? They have received their sight, but that sight is yet quite blurry. It was like me yesterday with my contacts on the wrong eyeballs. <laughs> Everything was blurry. So they're still at this stage. Their vision isn't, isn't focused real well. Um, they, they did, there was a lot of things they don't understand. Now, Matthew 16 is a very important chapter is a very important chapter. Jesus is really going to get serious with training his men because he's only got six months to go. So in Matthew 16, he's going to tell them about the church for the first time. Up to this point, they have no idea about the church and that they're, you know, that they're going to be the, laying the foundation for the Lord's church. They don't yet understand that he is going to die. When he tells them about it, they don't like that idea at all, do they? So, you know, it's easy for us to criticize them, but they were on the before side of the cross. They didn't understand about the significance of his death and resurrection. They didn't have a single book of the New Testament to read. They had not yet received God the Holy Spirit. So their vision was foggy. It was hazy. And that's made evident in this passage. What we have here is um, that because of the opposition that the Lord found in Magdala, he quickly gets his men in a boat and gets them out of there. He did not want them to be influenced by the Pharisees and the Sadducees or by Herod. Uh, this reminds me of when he quickly put his men in a boat after the feeding of the 5,000 because they were being swept up by the crowd and they were saying, finally, he's going to get the crown. Remember, the crowd wanted to crown Jesus. And they were being influenced by that. So he had to quickly put them in a boat and get them out of there. Well, the same thing is true here. The Lord is concerned that uh, these men, his men who will lay the foundation for his church, that they might be influenced by, by their religious rulers. And so he gets them out of there. And as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, it occurs to the men that they don't have any bread with them. They're thinking, oh, no, we've only got one loaf in the boat. And they're saying this among themselves, you know, don't tell Jesus we forgot to go to the grocery store. We're going to be in big trouble. <laughs> it's amazing to me. <laughs> See, what he's saying is you don't yet get that I am the bread of life. That one loaf in the, the boat that counted was him. He is the bread of life. They didn't need to worry about not having bread, did they? You know, didn't they get the picture yet about the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, the uh, bread of life sermon? That he is the bread of life and that he could feed their hunger or whatever. Anyhow, they didn't get it. So they're all concerned 
about only having one loaf of bread. And then they hear him say, because he's not thinking about bread, he's thinking about the religious rulers and the influence that they could have on his men and on, his, on the nation of Israel and on his future church. So he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and of, of Herod. And all they heard, it's funny to me, <laughs> all they heard is the word leaven, and they're thinking, uh-oh, leaven, that's yeast. He knows we've only got one loaf, <laughs> and, and we are in trouble. We are in trouble. They're, they're so funny, but they are so human, aren't they? They're just like you and I. They're, just, they're still thinking in physical terms. Isn't it amazing how many weeks we've been talking about bread? I just can't get it over. Week after week after week, we keep talking about bread. So they thought somehow that he was rebuking them because they had neglected to bring bread for the trip. Their response, look at verse 7, it is because we have taken no bread, revealed again how much they needed divine help to yet get clear vision of important truths. But Jesus, was he a patient teacher? Absolutely. He was so patient. You can hear it in his voice almost when he says, Oh, ye of little faith. One of his favorite terms for his men was little faith. They were the little faith band of men. (laughs) But little faith is better than no faith. The scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees had no faith. So he says, um, where where is it that he says? Verse 8. Why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? And then he says, don't you understand? And he quotes Jeremiah 5.21, I've already told you about. And then he says, you know, don't you remember? Guys, here's a little test. Do you remember about the feeding of the 5,000? How many baskets did you have left over? And he does ask him that question in Mark's account. It's not in Matthew, but he says, how many baskets did you have left over, guys? What's the answer? They gave the right answer, so they did remember. And they said 12. And then he says, how many baskets when, we, when I fed the 4,000? And they said seven. So um, they, and then they understood. It tells us their, their vision was opened. And they did understand that he wasn't talking about le- the leaven of bread and getting mad at them because they only had one loaf. He was rather warning them against the leaven of the religious rulers. You know, we could say that the Pharisees, you know, were warned in the Bible about three, three sins. They are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We could say that the Pharisees were dominated with the lust of the, um, uh, no, the pride of life, because they were the separatists, and they saw themselves as so separated and elite, and they were so full of self-righteous pride. So he's warning them against the pride of life. The Sadducees had the problem primarily with the lust of the eyes. They wanted to get all they could, you know, materialists. And Herod... Remember, he's the guy that had the big problem with the lust of the flesh. He, he really liked John the Baptist, didn't he? He really knew the man was godly and that he had things worth saying because he would go down into the prison where John the Baptist was and listen to him. And he really looked forward to listening to John and he enjoyed talking to John and hearing what he had to say. But what took over? Lust of the flesh. That began it when he married his brother's wife, and it, he sealed his fate when her daughter danced, and he gave her John the Baptist's head. So really the Lord was warning them about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
But the, the Lord's disciples did have their eyes opened, and they did understand. You know, it's always the Lord's desire above everything to give increased vision to man. His greatest desire is for man to have his eyes opened to the light of his truth, isn't it? To come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He wants believers, now we're talking about the disciples, so they're already believers. He wants believers to see ever increasingly throughout their lives, and that is why he gave us his word. I thought of a good title for a ministry would be the eye-opener ministry, wouldn't it? Or the eye-opener Bible study. But so many Christians, especially in our age, our Laodicean, lukewarm age, so many Christians are satisfied with cloudy vision. They really are. They're saved, and they can see enough, you know, to know that Jesus is their Savior and Lord, and that home is their heaven, and they're satisfied with that. They're, they're, sad. they're like um, a newborn babe. You know, babies can only see very hazy, fuzzy. I mean, they just see the outline of things. They don't see details, do they? And that's how so many Christians are. They have a, a fuzzy, hazy overall picture of the scripture and of God's plan for mankind, the whole redemptive plan of mankind. They just see it very fuzzily. They don't, get, they don't care about filling it in with the details, do they? Most Christians do. They say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. That's enough for me. But Jesus is in the eye-opening business, and he really desires us to continually work on our eyesight. Do you have a desire to have ever-increasing vision? I do. I hate the fact that I'm losing my physical vision, and I'm doing all I can to maintain it. You know, I praise the Lord, we have laser surgery, and we can do things about contact, um, cataracts, and we have contact lenses. And even when dummies like I get them in the wrong eyes, but we have glasses and everything. But you know what I desire more than everything, anything is to have my spiritual vision to keep increasing. That's what, and it, that's up to us. It's up to us. If it's a priority in your life, then you will continue to be a student of God's word, won't you? But so many people are just, they're just content with fuzzy vision. I don't understand that because I, you know, I know we all see through a glass darkly while we're here. But, you know, and, and, and we won't have perfect vision until we're glorified. But one day, ooh, man, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. One day we're really going to have clear vision when we look at Jesus face to face. Well, I'm probably out of time, but let me just talk about the miracle of the blind man because, oh, this is so cool. It's so neat. The, the healing of this blind man is actually the only miracle in Scripture that's given in uh, stages. You know, all the other miracles of the Lord were instantaneous. This one is given to us in two stages, and really it is a picture of his disciples and their, you know, cloudy vision getting cleared. So let's look at Mark 8, and I'll read verses 22 to 26. Interesting, Mark is the only one who gave us the miracle of the healing of the deaf man that we saw. Was that last week in Decapolis? Yes, yes, that was last week. <laughs> Seems like it's been a long time since last week. Um, Mark was the only one that gave us the healing of the deaf man, and now he's the only one who gives us the healing of this blind man. 
Remember that scripture Mark quotes? We're going to read it from Jeremiah. Having eyes ye see not, having ears ye hear not. These, those two miracles, again, are also a picture of his disciples. Let's look at Mark 8, verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida. This is after he crossed the Sea of Galilee. He went right back to the area of Bethsaida, which is where he fed the 5,000. And they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. Just picture this. I wonder if an artist has ever drawn a, made a rendering of this, of this. It would be something. The Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, taking this blind man by the hand and leading him out of the town. That's very interesting. I, we're going to talk about that. Why did he take him out of Bethsaida? Why didn't he heal him in the town? Don't let me forget to tell you why. All right. So Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, remember I said there's how many spitting miracles? Three. This is the second one. He spit on the man's eyes, put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw aught or if he saw, you know, do you see something? And he looked up and said, this is the blind man, I see men as trees walking. You know, obviously the man had seen at some time in his life. He was not born blind because when he now could see a little something, he saw men. He knew what men looked like and he knew what trees looked like. And he said, it looks like trees that are walking. I know they're men, but just so he had seen at one point in his life. All right. And after this, he, Jesus, again, put his hands on his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. Now, who do you think were those men he saw walking that looked like trees? The disciples, right? Remember, the Lord is all about teaching his men here. He took the blind man out of the town and did this miracle in front of his disciples. Verse 26, and he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Remember what he told the deaf man after he was healed? He said, tell it to no man. He, they, that was over in Decapolis. He said, tell it to no man. Here he doesn't say don't tell it to anyone. He's, he's back in Jewish territory. But he says, don't go back into the town and tell it to anybody in the town. What town was it? Bethsaida. Why do you think that is? Why did he take the man out of Bethsaida and tell him not to go back in the town and tell anybody in the town? Because Bethsaida was already under the, his curse. Remember when he had said, Woe unto you, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. They weren't going to get any more sign miracles. All right, so when he, he arrived back in the area of Bethsaida, he had this blind man brought to him. And as I said, in the two healings that we've had, one of a deaf man last week and this one of the blind man, these picture for us the spiritual condition of the disciples at this time. Had eyes, but they didn't quite see clearly. And they had ears, but they weren't really hearing quite clearly. And in both of these miracles, notice the Lord took the ones he healed away from the crowds. What had he been doing with his men, his disciples? taking them away from the crowds, from the influence of the crowds, from the influence of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, so that he could be alone with them to open their ears and to open their eyes to the ever-increasing truth of his person. 
his, the light of his word and his person. He took the man outside of Bethsaida because Bethsaida was already under a curse. And then he put his own saliva on the man's eyes. He put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. And the man tells us, you know, yeah, he saw men like walking like trees. He had gone from complete blindness to cloudy sight. He saw things now but because light was beginning to come, but he was not yet able to focus on things clearly. And isn't that a picture, as we just talked about, of the Lord's men? They could see, but they weren't seeing everything, you know, in focus like they would after, after the Lord's resurrection. <clears throat> the unique feature of this particular miracle is that it was done gradually in these two steps. It is the only one. And that's what makes it stand out. Uh, his eyesight was not restored at once. Notice that the Lord put his hand on the man how many times? Twice. That's because he's demonstrating there that we all need, especially his disciples, but all of us also need to have over and over again the touch of the Lord upon our lives. And where did he want the man to look up both times? I mean, where did he want them? I gave you the answer. <laughs> he wanted him to look up, didn't he? Isn't that what we are to do? You know, looking down does no good. If we're going to have increased vision, looking down is not going to do it. Or looking horizontally at those around us, like men walking, you know, like the, our peers and other people around us, the crowds. That's not going to do us any good to increase our vision, is it? Where do we get increased vision? When we look up. So it's such a, it, this is such a perfect picture of his men. Much like the blind man in this miracle and the disciples, our eyesight also comes to us gradually, doesn't it? When we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're given light. We are called out of darkness, and we are given eternal life and, and light. But that does not mean that we automatically see everything in clear focus. That's something that we have to work on. It takes work. I know it's hard to get into the scripture every day, isn't it? It's hard sometimes, you know, when you've had a busy week, it's hard to even do 10 homework questions. But... You know, if you really, if it's a priority in your life, you will do it. If you really want to see more clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, because the more we see him clearly, you know what happens? The more we love him and the more we want to serve him, right? All right, let's pray. Father God, give each of us here in this room a desire to increase our vision by looking up to your son to look up to him continually for guidance and for instruction. I pray that every, every woman here would purpose in her heart to make a life commitment to stay in the book, to be women of the book, to be women of continually increasing vision, women who are not ever satisfied with cloudy vision, women who desire more than just the milk of your word as newborn babes, but women who desire to get into the rich meat of your word so that we might know you better, so that we might love you more, and that consequently we might serve you more wholeheartedly. When we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.